Coming up. A high-profile marriage, cold-blooded murder, and an unsolved mystery that's gripped the nation for over 40 years. He likes gambling, fast cars, and the finer things in life. Of Lucan himself, nothing has been seen. Number 46, Lower Belgrave Street. The scene of one of the most celebrated murder mysteries of the 20th century. In the days that followed his disappearance, exhaustive police searches of the South Coast produced no clue. From the remote and isolated corners of the UK lockdown, I'm Amelia Hempel, and this is Scoop, a male plus podumentary. The remarkable stories behind the male's biggest interviews, told to us by the journalists who got the scoop. Lady Lucan was beautiful, troubled, enigmatic. I hadn't imagined it would happen. I mean, incredibly sad. There are so many loose ends. So many unanswered questions that intrigue and perplex. Observing what goes on in the shadows is what feature writer Francis Hardy does best. You go in with an open mind thinking, you know, what will emerge from this interview? You just let the story unfold and you let the interviewee tell the story. You don't interrupt too much and you let them go off at a tangent. You don't sort of try to keep drawing them back. Because down that little tangent, you know, that, that you might think is a blind alley, there might come out some really good angle that you hadn't thought of. To write a character profile requires patience, research and careful observation. Because sometimes, as Francis found out, it can be the small, seemingly throwaway comments which can change the whole story. And a shocking revelation can come in many forms. She said, I don't want to be a burden on society and I've decided that if I become infirm and I get a terminal illness or something rather terrible happens to me, I'm going to take my own life. The assignment dropped into Frances Hardy's inbox one morning back in 2017. It was a request from the book's editor. The scandalous socialite Lady Veronica Lucan was releasing a book called A Moment in Time which the male was planning to serialise. They wanted a splashy profile piece on Lady Lucan herself to round off the tell-all series. So, would Francis do it? It was a no-brainer. Yes, please, I would. I jumped at the chance because I remembered back to the story and how intrigued I'd been. And it was a challenge journalistically as well because I knew I'd have to try and get something out of her that we didn't already know. And, and so there was a lot else that I had to sort of winkle out of her to try and find something new. And also it's very intriguing to know what this woman was like after all these years, 40 years on. But this was no regular character profile. It was a horror story that stretched back decades to 1974. It was a sensational story at that time because it was a high society murder. It was this peer of the realm um, who was this rakish sort of James Bond figure, Lord Lucan, and he murdered his children's nanny in the mistaken belief that she was his wife. You know, it's an astounding story because there were all these components that made it rather glamorous because Lady Lucan herself was this beautiful, rather troubled, enigmatic soul, and she had three young children, and Lord Lucan had divorced her. The Lucans' marriage started off happily, but soon turned toxic as gambling debts racked up. Lady Lucan told how John would drink heavily, taunt and bully her, making her believe that she was going mad. He'd done lots of things to sort of gaslight her. He tried to get her locked up in a psychiatric hospital. 
She was fed very strong psychotic drugs and she almost began to think she was mad. Despite all of this, Veronica said that she still loved her husband. But as the marriage deteriorated further, the couple separated. A power struggle now began over who would have control of their three young children, Francis, George and Charlotte. He'd done some pretty heinous things. He tried to kidnap the children, take them away when they were out with the nanny, and just seems he wanted her out of the way. And I guess he thought he'd get away with it. Veronica eventually won custody after a long mudslinging court case and moved the children into a small Belgravia townhouse down the road from the original family home. It was here on the night of November 7th, 1974, that the tragedy took place. So Francis, what do we know about that evening? Lucan came back that night in November and he came in through the basement. He had a key and he mistook the nanny who was very slight and slender and exactly the same build as, as his wife. Apparently the landing light that would have illuminated that area down in the basement where he stumbled upon her had blown and so he didn't recognise this figure. He mistook her for his wife and bludgeoned her to death. He realised that it wasn't his wife and proceeded upstairs. He used a piece of piping and he tried to beat Veronica, his wife, with the piping and he had in fact used to beat her before sex. He was a sadist as well as everything else. Did he definitely mistake Sandra Rivette for his wife? Did he have any kind of motive to murder the nanny? There was certainly no affair. There was nothing sort of nefarious going on between them. It was simply that he mistook her. I don't think it was ever suggested that there was any other motive than that. He thought she was Veronica. And Veronica actually said to me that one of her friends had commented how similar they were. Once she'd worn a dress that had belonged to Lady Lucan even, they were that comparable in size and height. And the other thing was that on that night that she was murdered, it was usually her night off, but she'd swapped it so she could go out with her boyfriend on Wednesday. And um, she was at home. So there was no expectation that she would have been there. Was the motive ever established? Basically, he wanted the children. He wanted custody of the children. And he wanted her out of the way. You know, she was a nuisance. So what happened next? How did she escape? She managed to grab him by the testicles. She got away and ran and raised the alarm at a pub. And thereafter, what happened was Lucan himself drove a borrowed car down to some friends in Uckfield in East Sussex and told them he was going to lie doggo for a while. And the story he told them was that he chanced upon a murderer as he walked past his wife's house, which was preposterous. You know, a story that I don't think is really believable. But that was his story that he just happened to walk by. I mean, did he hire a hitman? That might be the case. But I think most people think he, he murdered her. And then comes the most mysterious part of the story. Lord Lucan just disappeared. The car was found abandoned. And what we don't know, but what Lady Lucan told me, was that he got on a cross-channel ferry at Newhaven and jumped off 
knowing the point at which he could be sort of chopped up by some sort of mechanism in the ferry that would have chopped his body up. So it was never, ever found. No, there were no pieces of it. No pieces were washed ashore. And, um, you know, she believes that that's why he disappeared without trace. That was her conclusion to the mystery. Back in England, the media was going wild with speculation and conspiracy theories. Police never found Lord Lucan, just an abandoned, blood-stained car on the Sussex Lord plate. Lucan disappeared off the face of the earth and was never seen again. When I say that, you know, there were sightings of him, alleged sightings. What happened to Lucan are numerous. That he jumped off a ferry near Newhaven or that he was spotted in France where hotels were served. No, he was said to be a hippie in Goa. He'd gone to, oh, I don't know, the Australian outback to be um, a cowboy or something. He was even said to have been eaten by the lions at his friend John Aspinall Zoo. That he shot himself before being fed to a tiger at a friend. But the fact is, his body was never found. And he was found guilty of murder by an inquest jury, which was the last time an inquest jury could ever gave that verdict. After that, it was changed. You had to have a judge and a jury in a, in a court. Francis, you were just a teenager when the story broke, weren't you? How did you feel about it at the time? Just the sheer intrigue of it, you know, that it was this story that involved these people who were wealthy, high society people. And I think, you know, that, that it was a very dour time. The 70s was a time of big political upheaval. Miners were striking over pit closures and the IRA was still very active. Picket line of sacked miners blocked the entrance. Support for them was unquestioned. That set a pattern for increasingly ruthless IRA attacks against British soldiers. Why is the whole country paralysed? People were looking, I suppose, for something that was intriguing and sensationalist in the papers. That it, it maybe sound very prurient, but it was a rattling good story, you know, and. Um, the disappearance of Lord Lucan ran for years and years. There were always stories popping up in the papers about where he disappeared to. Looking back at it all now, the story seems to have been completely dominated by the glamorous couple. I mean, we were never told much about poor Sandra Rivette, were we? We didn't hear a lot about her at all. In fact, I mean, she had a very sad story of her own because she had two children, I believe, who were adopted, and one by her mother because she'd had a very young in life. And... She'd left them, I think, up in East Anglia with her parents and um, come down to work as a nanny, hoping that her life would be slightly more exciting and glamorous than it had been. And she became a victim of this desperately awful murder. What happened with the children? Because they were really at the centre of this too, weren't they? Yes, they were at the centre of it. And they went off to live with Christina Shand Kidd whose husband was distantly related to Princess Diana. So yet another sort of high society, glamorous element of it. They chose George, when he was 18, he chose to go and live in the country with them rather than with Lady Lucan, which must have broken her heart. You know, it's been devastating because she fought very, very hard to keep them. We never really know why. They may have found that she was very troubled, you know, that she was difficult to live with, that, you know, they had a more open and country adventurous style of living with the Shan kids in the country and that, you know, her life was rather suffocating and narrow. We don't really know the answer to that question. 
It doesn't seem like we've heard their side of the story, have we? No, we haven't. I think there's a tremendous tension there with their mother still. I think they would have probably welcomed a rapprochement, but she really rejected it constantly. And also Camilla and George have said publicly that their father ought not to have been tarred with that brush. He shouldn't have been assumed to be a murderer, although the inquest ruled that he was. They don't think it was ever proven. And so that's as far as they'll go. They'll say that their father was never proven to be a murderer. And perhaps that hurt them deeply, that their mother was prepared to say he absolutely did murder Sandra Rivette. It was the summer of 2017 when Francis was scheduled to do the profile piece interview. Lady Lucan was now in her 80s, but still living in that same Belgravia townhouse where the nanny Sandra Rivette was killed that night. Her book was to reveal new graphic details about Lord Lucan's abusive behaviour and more on the couple's sex life. There was just a lot of detail about the night, the battle on the stairs, really to try to get away from him. He'd put a gloved finger down her throat to try and silence her as she screamed. What were going to be the challenges of this interview? Was there anything that was off limits? I don't think it was desperately hard because she had made up her mind she was going to talk. She'd made the decision after all those years and it was almost an opening of the floodgates. And I had a sense that this was a valediction, this last interview was a way to put the record straight. It was to say, no, I want to tell my story. I want to lay it all out as it was. Tell me about the day you met Lady Lucan. I can remember it well because it was this lovely spring day. What I did first was I walked down the road in Belgravia to look at the house where the murder had taken place. It was a big five-storey, beautiful early Victorian mansion which probably cost about 20 million now, I should think. And then just round the corner was where Lady Lucan had moved to. And it was the family guest house. But she hadn't left the neighbourhood. She had just moved No, she was corner. still, she was living in the guest house. So if you can imagine, they owned this house, the five-bedroomed house, which was sold. And the guest house that they kept in Belgravia, just round the corner, you know, a stone's throw away from where the murder took place, where she was attacked by her husband. And she had chosen to still live in that house. So she was enmeshed in this little area where these awful, tragic events had happened. And she was almost sort of chosen to be imprisoned by this awful past of hers and defined by it. And did anything strike you as strange when you spoke with her? The extraordinary thing about it was that all the curtains, very heavy drapes, I could see they were closed on this bright spring morning. And I'd been told that she never opened the curtains and, in fact, had never opened them for 40 years. And this I found out to be true. Anyway, I rapped on the door with my knuckles and there was a long, long wait. And I began to think, gosh, she's forgotten I'm coming. You know, she, she's just not going to answer the door. And your heart sinks because you think, I don't think she's going to do the interview. I think she's chickened out of it. But finally, it opened a crack. And there she was. She wanted to know who I was. It was obvious I was Francis. And, and she said, come in. And I sort of had to sidle through this tiny crack. And she did nothing to lighten the room. The room was in complete darkness. My eyes weren't acclimatised to it. I could see this little figure. And I sat down on the sofa. And um, 
had to say to Lady Lucan, do you mind if we have a little light in the room because I can't see my notebook? And it was as bad as that. It was impenetrable darkness. And instead of putting the electric light on, she just opened the front door a crack, just a tiny little amount. And so a shaft of sunlight fell onto my notebook. And I couldn't see her. I could just see the notebook and I could just take notes. And we conducted the whole interview, which was probably two or three hours in that semi-darkness. So, Francis, you'd finally met the elusive Lady Lucan. What was she actually like in person? To start with, she was quite formal and she was physically, she was she was little and she sat very straight and tall and she wore you know, quite chic clothes, but chain store clothes. You know, she didn't have anything expensive on. She had a long grey hair in a ponytail and um, quite a girlish little look, really. And she still had the same makeup on that she'd worn in the 60s, this sort of winged eyeliner, but she put it on rather ineptly and it was quite sort of sad really to see she was this rather sort of crinkly eyes with the winged eyeliner. It sounds like she was just very stuck in this tragic past. She had a painting, in fact a portrait that she'd painted of Lord Lucan behind her and so she and she had family photographs all around. Probably they'd been there 40 years. So although she was estranged from her family, she seemed to be hanging on to this past. And although her husband attempted to murder her, she still had his portrait there behind her. After everything that had happened and all the things she'd been through, did she regret her marriage with Lord Lucan? No, she didn't regret it because the day when her son George was born was the best day of her life. And that struck me as terribly poignant that although she was estranged from him, she still palpably, she adored him. All this, this bizarre darkness, almost the fustiness of it all and the being stuck like Miss Havisham almost in this past that she couldn't escape. Somehow she felt compelled not to escape it all. It was all very bizarre. Frances was still wondering why Lady Lucan had chosen this time, so late in her life, to tell her side of the story. In hindsight, that would become tragically clear. She said to me, well, two things that were very new, really. She said that not only was she estranged from her children, but she had never met her grandchildren. She hadn't been invited to Camilla's wedding, her older daughter. And Frances, she didn't know who her husband was. And then there was another new element to it, which was very sad. She said to me that she didn't want to be a burden. And by that, she meant she didn't want to be a burden on society because she had no relatives who care for her if she got old and infirm. She said, I don't want to be a burden on society. And I've decided that if I become infirm and I get a terminal illness or something rather terrible happens to me, I'm going to take my own life. What did you say when she said that? I don't remember feeling I had to contest it because I was just there to listen, really. She told me that this quite factually and matter-of-factly and almost with relief, I think, that she'd unburdened herself because later she wrote, we kept up a little correspondence and she wrote to me afterwards and she said, I was pleased with the way you reported the conversation. I liked the article and it was fair. And she said, I was really especially pleased that you'd reported that I believed in voluntary euthanasia. I didn't express a horror or a suggestion that she shouldn't do it because she seemed quite calmly that to be her decision. Just a few months after Frances had interviewed Lady Lucan, 
she did in fact take her own life. Lady Lucan died alone here at her home in Eaton Row and police say there were no suspicious circumstances. An inquest did corroborate that, that she didn't think that there was anything wrong with her psychologically, that she was clear thinking. And in fact, sadly, really Lady Lucan thought she had Parkinson's disease. She told me she thought she had Parkinson's disease. But the post-mortem actually didn't reveal any evidence of any kind of illness at all. You know, she's quite robust, good health. It seemed as though Lady Lucan was still trapped in an ironclad past that she couldn't escape. But her life had become very different. Money was running out. She evidently could have sold the Muse house and I can imagine made rather a lot of money out of it and lived very comfortably, perhaps at the seaside. She had links with Bournemouth where she thinks she'd gone to art school there. She could have gone down and, and lived sort of almost incognito, I imagine, in a pleasant little bungalow somewhere and, and never been troubled by anybody. But she rattled around in this Muse house and she was poor. You know, she was worried about the winter fuel allowance being cut. The glory days were over, the days when she had holidays in Switzerland and glamorous and parties and a nanny and, you know, those were long gone. And she lived very frugally. She told me she did her own washing and ironing. She proffered a cup of instant coffee and one of those basic chocolate bars came out and she offered me a little piece of that. And I thought it was all quite sad, really, you it know, in her circumstances. Really did she get emotional mm. when she was talking to you? No, no, not at all, not at all. I think she was, you know, she was quite a steely character. But there was really this pathos about it because she said that she was so worried about dependency and she would have had three loving children who would have looked after her if only she'd been less stubborn. She might not have felt the need to commit suicide. And she'd specifically cut her children out of her will due to what she called a lack of good manners. Was there no attempt at a reconciliation from either side? I know that George did extend that olive branch and I suspect that children were much more amenable to a meeting than she was. But we know that Francis, by her account anyway, didn't invite her to a wedding and that Camilla didn't either. So I don't know who was being more stubborn. Francis was the last journalist to ever interview Veronica Lucan. What kind of reactions did you get from the piece? I think people were sympathetic to her and sad and thought of her as a rather maligned figure, that she'd been unjustly thought of as a sort of batty woman, a recluse. And yet there was this abiding sadness to her. So, Francis, what are you thinking about when you do a big profile interview like this? Because... It's a very different kind of journalism, isn't it? I don't ever go in with a preconceived idea of somebody. I don't think about it until I write it because I never go into a story thinking this is what I will get out of it because I think that's really the worst thing you can do. You go in with an open mind thinking, you know, what will emerge from this interview? You just let the story unfold. And don't let them get away with platitudes, you know, don't let them say, gosh, I was devastated by that. You say, well, yes, but think back to when you were thinking that feeling of devastation. What actually went through your mind? And they'll come up with something fresh and new that isn't a cliché. Is there a certain characteristic of yours that you'd say has helped you most in interviews like this? 
Oh gosh, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've got any magic formula at all, but I don't think that I'm scary. I am shy. I think that's quite an interesting thing because a lot of people think journalists are quite outgoing, gregarious, you know, the life and soul of the party. Well, I hope I'm not too dull, but I mean, I don't particularly like the sound of my own voice. And it's quite atypical of me to chat along like this. And in fact, I'm always certain that, you know, what I have to say is a lot more dull than what someone's got to say to me. So my tactic, (laughs) yeah, well, certainly is. (laughs) I think that's helped me in my interviews because that's what I've always done. I've always enjoyed hearing people's stories. I'm never bored by other people. From a little girl, actually, when I was very shy. I think my mother said to me once, look, Francis, if you're shy, just find you find that person who's standing in the corner because they're just as shy as you are. Go up to them and say to them, tell me about yourself. You know, tell me about your life. And that way you get these magical stories unfold, really. And, um, yeah, it's a technique I've taken into journalism. Good advice from your <laughs> mum. That's it from us this week on Scoop. From our sofas at home to yours, we're all in lockdown, of course. But we'll be back soon with another insider look at the art of journalism investigations. I'm Amelia Hempel. You can read more of Frances Hardy's interview pieces in The Mail and The Mail on Sunday. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify.